Welcome to the Penn Science Policy and Diplomacy Podcast. My name is Camille Testard, and I am your host today on the show. Here, we endeavor to explore the work and lives of scientists, the history of knowledge, what is left to discover, and why it all matters. Today, Luigi Vargas, a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania, will join me in interviewing our guest. Hello, Luigi. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, our guest today is Dr. Jonathan D. Moreno. Uh, Dr. Moreno is a professor at University of Pennsylvania of Medical Ethics and Health Policy, of History and Sociology of Science, and of Philosophy. He is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and is the U.S. member of the UNESCO International Bioethics Committee. Dr. Moreno has served as an advisor to many governmental and non-governmental organizations, including three presidential commissions, the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and many more. He has published nine books and hundreds of peer-reviewed articles covering a range of subjects in bioethics, from how gene editing technologies redefines human nature, to how national security pushes for and takes advantages of biomedical discoveries, to how neuroscience affects the practice of law. So with all that being said, welcome on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot for being here. Um, so first, uh, in this podcast, I like to take a little bit of a historical perspective to the issues we discuss. Me too. Perfect. <laughs> so before we delve into a specific branch of bioethics as it relates to neuroscience, uh, I would like to ask or take a little historical step back and examine the emergence of modern bioethics. So my question is, when did we, the international community, uh, realize the need to consider the ethical or societal implications of scientific discoveries and particularly related to biomedical sciences? So, of course, uh, in one sense, the ethics of medicine is at the core of the practice of medicine. Um, we know that something like, although not exactly the Hippocratic Oath, was probably available uh, several hundred years BCE to the young men who pledged to be part of, of and keep the secrets of the medical fraternity in that part of the world in Asia Minor. We know that um, there have been cultural standards around the practice of medicine for generations. What I believe has changed is two things. One that gave rise to what I consider modern bioethics, transition from traditional doctor-oriented ethics to bioethics, is the emphasis, especially since the Second World War, on telling patients the truth. What we today call informed consent, of course, is the practical manifestation of the standard that people who are ill on the whole deserve to know what's wrong with them and um, to be able to make critical decisions about their medical care. That might surprise some people because when one think of, thinks of the Hippocratic Oath, one would think, well, if surely telling patients the truth is part of it, but actually um, nothing in any of the Hippocratic writings requires that patients be told the truth. Hmm, um, so that was a change that happened gradually. The second thing that I would say about where we are now, especially relevant to this podcast, uh, is that in the beginning of the field that uh, we call bioethics, modern bioethics, 
the dominant issues that the very few people who were in that area talked about in the 70s and 80s were mainly uh, area, issues of clinical ethics, of doctor-patient relations. In the 90s, I think you saw uh, more of an interest or an emergence of interest in ethical issues in the in the laboratory sciences and the life sciences. A lot of this was stimulated by the Human Genome Project and the realization uh, that there were big implications to decoding, uh, mm. not, not only decoding the human genome in particular. Now again, this nothing in history is completely new. There were definitely people who were interested in bioethics in the late 60s and early 70s who were very interested in the implications of, uh, of genetics. And of course, this goes back to science fiction writers, you know, when Aldous, uh, Aldous Huxley, and uh, even before Huxley, uh, eugenicists and so forth. But the fact that you could actually take a cell, whether it's a, an individual cell or an embryo, and manipulate it in the laboratory, you make it an object in the world that in, in, where you can do interventions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, I think, stimulated interest, as I said, in, in more and more people in bioethics got interested in ethics in the laboratory. I see. So a switch from the clinically focused bioethics to, which came from the Second World War and uh, the, the experiments that were done on humans in the context of the Second World War. Right. The Nazi concentration um, camps, of course, right. in particular. Then we, later on, we learned about the Imperial Japanese experiments. Then we all, over the years, I've been part of investigations of U.S.-related experiments involving uh, prisoners and other vulnerable populations. Um, it's still true, that, of course, that uh, probably most people in bioethics are more on the clinical ethics, uh, research ethics side. Um, mm -hmm. There's a core group of people who are interested in, in, in ethics and policy around the practice of the life sciences in the lab, and a core within that core of people who are particularly interested, like me, in the ethics of neuroscience. I see. Perfect. That's a perfect transition to my next point. Thank you for this thorough historical background. Today, the focus is uh, bioethics as it applies to neuroscience or neuroethics. And just a little bit of an introduction here, uh, neuroscience is a subject of fascination both because of its direct medical implications, like finding cures for devastating neurodegenerative diseases such as dementia, and because of its implications in translating the intangible, our thoughts, our memories, our emotions, into tangible biological processes. So what are the implications for our beloved free will? Um, if our thoughts are rooted in biology, can they be modified, like we can modify the genes in our cells? If so, who could take advantage of such a technology? Um, many questions come to mind when we start delving into the ramifications of neuroscientific discoveries. But before we actually delve, um, I like to start by laying the groundwork for listeners who may not necessarily be familiar with these 
um, neuroscientific technologies like brain recording and manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we start there? Uh, what are these technologies and what are the current ethical concerns concerning those technologies? As you've said, we can record electrical activity and electrochemical activity in the brain and can also, to some extent, modify that activity in the laboratory. In a certain way, we're, we're continuing, and you sort of alluded to this, an age-old debate, at least since the Enlightenment, about the relationship between the mind and the brain. Uh, if you're a Cartesian, um, you, know, you believe that there are two substances, mental substance and physical substance. And that framework has become a challenge uh, for subsequent generations to try to figure out whether that framework even makes any sense. What, we, what people have been aware of for a long time was the way that you could uh, use even certain um, uh, fish right, to actually, and, and animals to uh, electrify the body. Um, this, these are ancient ideas, and then in the 19th century in the laboratory, people started vivisecting frogs and then you know, electrifying them and getting them to move. The idea of electrifying the body uh, is an old idea, Uh, and uh, was used by people who were interested in treating uh, people with mental illness. ECT is a pretty pretty old technology now, shock therapy, electrocardiotherapy. therapy. It's a pretty old therapy. It's Can you describe a little bit for us and our listeners what what ECT is? ECT involves essentially changing the electrical activity in the brain of a person who is uh, uh, probably bipolar, as we call it, bipolar, manic depressed. Mm -hmm. And and these are people who, in their depressive phases, they uh, they cannot be treated. Uh, They're what's called refractory to medication like like lithium, where they've gone off their uh, medication. And, And for many of these people, nothing works except ECT. Mm-hmm. Uh, although as ECT has gotten a bad reputation, partly because of films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in- interestingly, just as ECT was being used, particularly in the 1950s, electroencephalographic measurement was more and more used. So just to clarify, EEG, Louis Jim, could you explain a little yeah, bit? Yeah, so EEG is a way of recording neuronal activity, and this isn't invasive in any way. You just apply very large um, electrical patches on the scalp and then you can pick up uh, large swaths of neuronal activity um, and it's kind of like a conglomerate of a bunch of neurons um, doing their thing. And sometimes this correlates with thoughts or uh, energy. So for instance, if someone is asleep, you can see that in their EEG recording, they'll have very um, large amplitude, slow activity. I see. Okay. People got very excited about this, right? Because this is a, this is an experimental measure that was objective, and people used it in labs. It's a, it's really surprising. Uh, you can see documentaries, for example, of people at places like Yale who were doing EEG uh, in the late fifties, early sixties. So you're saying that that was kind of the first technology that would give us a, a window into human in way, cognition. Uh, a bi- biologically based in, let's say. in a way I mean look this is a time when you have to see this in the context history of science mm-hmm. um, this is a time when you know what's the big field of science it's physics and and you know the physicists rule the roost uh, and they are actually able to do stuff with invisible particles right I'm thinking about the bomb and all the implications of the bomb and radioactivity mm-hmm. and you no know, naturally life scientists wanted to do that too Mm-hmm. Uh, and here they could actually get an objective measure of some invisible, a- otherwise invisible activity. 
So I, I, I see this in terms of history of science as a, a way for the life sciences to kind of say, me too. and I'm not even, we, our other colleague can explain what, how these technologies work, but what, what they're doing is different ways of, of recording activity in the brain. What we're not still so great at, and we can talk about this some more, is going back into the brain and modifying it uh, in a very targeted way. Absolutely. That's harder, and it's especially hard if you do it from the outside. Definitely, um, neuroscience has undergone a sort of evolution, I, I think, starting with things like the EEG where we were recording you know, large patches of neurons on the outside. There was also uh, the person who gave all of the areas, Broadman? Mm -hmm. Broadman's yeah. area. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so he was a surgeon and he, in mid-surgery, decided to go ahead and record from different um, areas of the brain or yeah. maybe stimulate OSO and ask... Dr. So Penfield, no, are you, are you Pen talking about Dr. Uh, Penfield? Yeah, and the yeah. So Wilder Penfield, the yeah. Montreal McGill surgeon where you can, there's a Penfield Avenue, Avenue Penfield, right, in Montreal. Yes. So you know, Penfield had people doing open brain surgery without consent. He would uh, give them a little zap. We don't do that without consent anymore. Mm -hmm. And he would see the different parts, and sure enough, and he, he started, this is also a period where people were very excited about localization. Right. 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 So um, the idea that, that really maybe in Broadman's part, a part of that, maybe there are really very specific parts of the brain or organs in the brain that are deeply correlated with, you know, with causation. Uh, localization has come and gone, uh, I guess it's fair to say. Um, people now are a little more skeptical about that. It, it looks like so many of those activities are distributed around the brain. Uh, nonetheless, localizers were onto something. Um, mm -hmm. So and and so, um, what people who do deep brain stimulation now, right, with people who have, with patients who have Parkinson's uh, disease to help them manage their symptoms. Right, that's one way that we're actually going back into the brain and, exactly. and changing yeah. things right. around. Right. right, but that is obviously very invasive, uh, and um, uh, there is some extinction to to those devices after a while. I'm not sure people mm -hmm. really understand exactly why that is, but you can't move those things around too often, those electrodes around, so people are looking for other ways to get in there, but it's still going to be brain surgery, which is, by the way, one reason I'm a little skeptical about some of the claims that are made about the future of brain implants. Mm -hmm. uh, it's always going to be brain surgery. Um, um, so the problem is amplifying the signals that come out and also figuring out how to get through the skull. Um, right, because right, right now in terms of ways, yeah, of ways to manipulate brain activity without actually going into the brain. There's trans, sorry, transcranial magnetic, magnetic stimulation, stimulation, but that is um, not, that doesn't have a great spatial resolution, doesn't have a great temporal right. resolution. I think now we've, we've come a long way in neuroscience and we believe that there are specific areas of the brain. I like to think of them in circuits. I think that's mm -hmm. one of the ways we've kind of come forward in neuroscience. Right. 
that certain circuits are involved in different functions. Yeah. Uh, for instance, there's a circuit involved in choosing an action and, and, and doing that very smoothly that is impaired in Parkinson that is remedied with deep brain stimulation by uh, stimulating a problem area in the brain that allows for that smooth action to be continued normally. Um, and so Nicolilis uh, right. at Duke uh, has done, so I guess he's sort of the pioneer in figuring out how to train um, monkeys, but then in principle also people. Uh, they don't need to actually move their limb in order to make something work, uh, uh, to move a cursor around or a computer screen mm -hmm. and all the implications of that, which is very exciting for amputees. So just so that I yeah. uh, reframe this, so you're talking, yeah. are you referring to brain-machine interfaces? Yes, this is a form of brain-machine interface. Right, so this is when we're actually implanting on the surface of the brain of patients who are tetraplegic or don't right. have access to some of their limbs, and we're actually implanting about 100 electrodes on the surface? I understand that you can do significantly more electrodes more. And, yeah. you know, than mm -hmm. that. Some and labs more. do uh, hundreds of electrodes. Mm -hmm. Still limited by the material. This is a material science challenge. Right. Um, but uh, you can, uh, in, in effect, do a, create a kind of a bridge, an electronic bridge between impulses, as you've described, in circuits, uh, and manipulating a device. And if you can do that with, an, with somebody like my mother, for example, who was an amputee of the right arm at the clavicle um, at the age of 40, who could never use a prosthesis, um, the opportunities for prosthetic devices are incredible, right, in theory. Right. And right. many of them, as you know, are being devised now. Some of them are being devised by the de Defense Department uh, with an eye toward people who come back from combat, uh, having lost limbs. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about this in, in a little bit. Okay. So just so that I, I conclude kind of this question, yeah. um, different <laughs> technologies like EEG, like yeah. uh, functional magnetic um, resonance imaging, so all these different non-invasive technologies to measure brain activity. Yeah. And there are also some more invasive brain technologies, right, right. Um, like deep brain stimulation, right. like these uh, brain-machine interfaces where we're actually putting electrodes into yes. the brain. And perhaps the most exciting one from the point of view of you guys in the lab is right. optogenetics. Oh, exactly. Right. <laughs> we yeah. were going to get to that. So optogenetics yeah. is, is actually this super cool new technology where we can uh, target certain neurons in the brain in certain circuits in very specific ways and get them to express this um, what we call channel or little door uh, on, mm -hmm. on the surface of their membrane so that whenever we shine light on it they open and we have positive electrodes coming into the cell yeah. causing it to fire. So that means you can control very specific brain circuits and very specific cells at the speed of light. And you can follow pathway of the circuits Exactly. From neuron to neuron to neuron. Right. Which is so insane. how do all of these technologies then raise, what kind of ethical concerns do you think that they raise? Uh, for the most part, I think they raise, uh, I'll come back to the issues around uh, when we get back to uh, prosthetics, but for the most part, I think they, they raise interesting symbolic questions, uh, um, philosophical questions about um, free, as you said, free will and, and determinism, um, about how, how far we can and should go in manipulating human, human brains. Um, I, don't, I don't think that these are sort of everyday concerns, even in the, perhaps in the long term, but thinking of the near and midterm, I don't know that they're, they're concrete concerns. In the long term, 
and we'll come back to this, they could be very interesting problems. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, with people who are, for example, very, very uh, ill, like people with tetraplegia, for example, you can raise questions about their ability to really give consent, um, given their circumstances, if they're, if they're virtually locked in. Um, right. Can, can some, you know, this is very much like problems that people have with, uh, at the end of life when uh, we want to do a study or even if we want to do an intervention uh, that may not be um, predictably therapeutic. Is this something that pe people can really consent to? And those are really hard philosophical questions about when you lose your capacity because your circumstances are so extreme. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't really warrant your judgment as a reflection of, of who you are and your, own, you know, your, your, your authentic values. Right. Leaving all that aside, you know, there are questions uh, about how far we can go in the lab and in experimental contexts and manipulating brains. And, and then privacy issues about how much information we can get out of your brain. These are really, these keep me going mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and many people like me. advising different national security agencies like the Department of Defense or the Homeland Security? Occasionally, not uh, Occasionally. not um, on a continuous basis at the moment. Or at least you're very familiar with yeah. uh, how the Army has or what kind of influences the Army has on the kinds of research that are pushed forward in, in neuroscience. Yes. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about how are these agencies pushing neuroscience research forward in non-therapeutic applications? Well, let's start with the artificial intelligence question. The single biggest concern that major defense establishments have right now is about the amount of data that they can get from devices on the ground, under the ocean, in the air, how much information they, they are able to, to download, and how to interpret that information. Right? There is, in other words, a data crisis in, in national security planning. It's quite clear even now, that if, you know, if you're a pilot and a fighter, you're getting a, an insane amount of information uh, that you cannot process with, the, with a human brain. Mm -hmm. uh, and so algorithms are doing that for you. We don't usually think about this in a military context, but there are a lot of assumptions that are being loaded into the algorithms that are finally reflected in devices that uh, a fighter pilot is reading. And at some point, the, the tempo of armed conflict is so fast that at some point human beings just are not going to be as reliable as machines mm -hmm. to decide what to do. This is the, this is not what you may think of as a standard neuroscience problem. 
but so much of AI is based on what we know about the human brain and the way it processes, or the sort of the neural networks metaphor, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that it is a neuroscience issue. And then, then the other side of it is, could you ever do something to a human brain that would make it as fast as a supercomputer in these incredibly pressed circumstances where you have to push a button or not and decide whether to kill somebody. Right. <laughs> so would you say that then uh, where they're really pushing forward is in these brain-machine interfaces precisely? Things like neural prosthetics? You know, it's an area that is of great interest, and there are definitely, there are programs, uh, there's a problem called subnets, for example, a DARPA. DARPA is the cutting-edge Defense Department Science Agency. They're really interested in this. And, and they're interested in it, I think, for the right reason, because we don't want to get to a situation where it's robots fighting robots, and the rest of us are just, you know, hoping that they don't land on us. <laughs> um, people who enter the military want to actually be doing the work and mm -hmm. not letting a machine do the work. It's, it's very paradoxical. Yeah. Um, and it's like trying to augment the brain before, mm. before the machine gets to a point where it's just dominant. Exactly. And although you and I worry about this maybe, you know, in the context of advertising, what ad are we going to get first because the algorithm is, is sending that ad to us, there is no area that is in which this is more an existential issue than military. Now, we can move back from there, you know, toward more medical problems like warfighters who come back missing a limb and prostheses that may be all... This is even harder to do than people had hoped. It's all harder than people had hoped. But... Mm -hmm. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, a, prost a prosthetic arm or leg could, well, they're already very good, right? Yeah. The problem is they're not reliable, you know. So uh, uh, how reliable are they? Um, you know, one, uh, and this is all true of exoskeletons, the machine that fit over the body to make you stronger. Um, having talked to a lot of people who have command responsibility, uh, I have, I've said, well, what's the problem that that is solving? that is not creating more problems because these things have to be damn reliable in the field. So there's a whole support chain. You know, it's said that every mm -hmm. so-called drone has like eight, at least 80 people behind it. And do you think that the, the part of, so these technologies kind of are getting uh, signals straight from our brains, right? So you could, you could sort of t say like that's getting big data straight out of our, of our brains. And so that, wouldn't that be the ultimate um, computer brain computer interface. Yeah, and then, and then at what point are we no longer you know biological slash silicon uh, creatures? And that's a real interesting question. Yeah, and then all that data could then also be used yeah. by by. Yes, yeah, so there's by always the, there's the hacking problem, uh, mm -hmm. hacking in and 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 sucking data out of those systems. Right, they're they're definitely a cyber security. Are these problems. things that that oh, the yes, military talk about? about? Absolutely. But yeah. they are thinking about it in terms of developing technologies to do that, or more of a concern? Well, both. both. I mean, you generally develop a technology because you want to figure out what its limitations are mm -hmm. and, and whether you can defend against it, because you know the other guy is thinking along very similar lines. Stand up on your two feet, 
This is the military, and they, they are paying close attention to this. But how much of this is being thought about in the private sector? Or I know Elon Musk has—he's、uh, trying to get some type of neuroprosthesis grants going and、yeah. trying to fund projects that are, are moving along that. And I, I mean, I can imagine how something like an exoskeleton is good for someone who's quadriplegic in their home, just、yeah. as a way to have the regular standard of life that the rest of us have. And、right. Um, I, so th- there's also places to think about this outside of the military. And do you, are you aware of anything like that going on? It's an interesting question because, for the most part, in the during the Cold War era,、uh, the money for these kinds of things was 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 coming out of the、uh, out of government funding.、Um, but it is in it's certainly true in the last twenty years or so,、uh, private corporates have gotten more and more involved. And there's a sort of a debate about what's the what's the most efficient way to do this, and I you know I don't know the answer to that, but people people in the policy world are very interested in this question. Now, the coin of the realm for academics is peer review.、Mm-hmm. Peer review is inherently conservative. Now, that's a good thing and a bad thing, right?、Mm-hmm. It's hard to break out of the pack in the peer review system. However, there's also this other idea that what you should you should really go for the prize. Uh, and Musk is, you know, in the non-government world, somebody like that,、um, who says, or you know, or Bill Gates, in the in terms of what he's trying to do with、uh, with public health problems in, develop,、mm-hmm. in the developing world. So you just go for the prize, you know. Now DARPA has done that for a very long time. Actually, they、uh, they don't they don't operate on a you know on a grant the, the way that the NIH does or the National Science Foundation does. They find people who are doing cool stuff that might be useful, or a piece of it might turn out to be useful. They find out about them. They write them a letter. They write them a check,、mm-hmm. uh, and then、um, they watch very carefully what they're doing. And maybe they're done in a few years, and they put it on the shelf. And maybe it'll be useful later, and maybe it won't be. Is there any obligation for the researcher if it gets funding from DARPA? Is there well, they're prop- monitored by program officers.、Uh, There's some property of, of the technology if it gets well. You negotiate that with the institution.、Uh, there are these technology transfer offices now. Interestingly, there's also no standard with respect to classified research in the academy. As to say, some universities will take classified research on campus, some will not.、Mm-hmm. Some places like、uh, you know, Hopkins with the big applied physics lab that's like a billion dollars a year or something,、um, they'll be off campus. Right?、Mm-hmm. So sort of off campus and not really on campus because of the values of liberal arts. You know, arts and sciences you should be open and transparent.、Right? So, but there are places that will take classified research, and then there are there are in, in fact ownership questions over the intellectual property for sure.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, but those are negotiated. I see. No, there is a real question about how also private companies are pushing these kinds of research forward for monetizing purposes, and、right. how are they going to be using that data to and to what end is also right. Well, I mean worrisome. Yes. So you know, the, the street has mostly been in the direction of government to the culture.、Um, you think about our, the, the ARPANET, or the beginning of the Internet.、Mm-hmm. ARPA was the predecessor to DARPA, <coughs> and、um, you know, obviously, the Internet has changed the world,、um, and that was 
that was government. Um, Do you think that neuroscience fo is following that path as well? The internet was pushed by the army and by the war. That race for the best technology to win the war is what kind of created that technology. Do you think uh, neuroscience will be pushed? It wasn't actually the war. It was, this is a Cold War era, right? So mm, yeah. this was questions about, um, I mean, originally it was because it was a cool thing that the people at Berkeley and Stanford wanted to be able to talk to each other, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so, but they did get funding very early. Um, there's a, uh, there was an MIT uh, guy named Licklider who was sort of a legend at DARPA who was there at that time. And he had a, he was a visionary and he said, we really need to, to promote this concept. Um, so, um, but the pathway has generally been out from government to industry, right, and private monetization. Mm -hmm. um, now it's a little more complicated. And so now this, you, you know, look, if Elon Musk does come up with something, then the boys at Langley will be very interested, and the girls <laughs> in, in figuring out how to get hold of this. Um, mm -hmm. this, is a, this is a huge concern for national security planners, right, because no nation state can necessarily keep control of this stuff. These are international, big international companies, high, you know, with lots of money. And who gets to control it? It's not, it's not like um, when the bomb was built and you can compartmentalize it and keep it secret, at least for a few years. Um, yeah, not only that, I mean, within the states, but also across borders. Right, um, exactly. Because when you think about it, all these scientific discoveries, they're happening all over the world, but these regulatory agencies are local, they're national. So then how do you deal with that? Can you really control the advance of technologies? I mean, this is one of the debate. This is one of the reasons right now that uh, there's this. Uh, there are these new constraints being put on companies, um, U.S. companies sending technology to China, uh, because those technologies are going to be incorporated in ways that we don't have control over. Um, so, yeah, this is a this is a huge problem. Is that a problem that we talk about the UN? Well, the UN doesn't have any control over member states in, 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 in terms of this stuff. The, there is, uh, there was the World Trade Organization, which also doesn't really have any control. No, these are decisions that are made by nation states um, about who gets what of our good stuff. Because right. we're worried about what they could do. You know, even this is not, in some sense, we, in, in a weird way, this even happened uh, in, the, in the way old wars were fought when, you know, you didn't want to abandon your equipment uh, during World War II, right? You wanted to burn it. Mm -hmm. Because you didn't want the, the other guys to take your equipment, your, your all your jeeps and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So we've just accelerated this to a much more abstract level now. As, a, as an advisor to some of these agencies, what is your role, really? Is it the, these kind of advices where be wary of trading these particular technologies because over there we don't really know how they're going to use it? Uh, like what no, kind of role do you have? they're almost always way ahead of me. Um, <laughs> it, it sort of depends on the situation. But, you know, mostly I think they like to have somebody in the room who isn't, 
they're smart enough to know that it's good to have an, a, a, an outside point of view, sort of a referee, somebody who doesn't have that, the perspective that, that they have in their culture. Uh, and I like it because I get to learn their culture. And basically, um, I think I get a lot more out of it than they do. I'm an, eth- I, I, I'm an ethnographer in that mm-hmm. respect. You know, mm-hmm. I, go and th- I see national security agencies as participating in a certain culture. Uh, and I'm walking in and trying to learn what the culture's like much as I can. But I, I think mostly it's um, it's really to get another point of view. Um, I think for the last 20 minutes, I want to make sure we, we talk about this other subject, completely other subject, so I'm going to switch gears completely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to talk about neuroscience in the context of the practice of law. Mm-hmm. So the more we learn about neuroscience and psychology, the more we realize that our genes, the environment we grew up in, early trauma, highly stressful situations, uh, etc., make us much more likely to behave in certain ways. Um, and so what does this say about the concept of fault mm-hmm. in law? Uh, does it make sense to punish someone for a crime he committed rather than acknowledging the causes which led him to commit the crime in the first place and addressing that issue instead? Um, so I guess... My question for now is, what, in what critical ways has this wealth of knowledge in neuroscience and psychology uh, been used in the practice of law currently? Right. So there are two well-defined views about this. Right? One view is the more we learn about how we are influenced by all the factors that you mentioned and others, we're, un- we're, we're seeing now that when people do things that are bad, uh, that um, that for which we might have punished them in the past, we're understanding enough now to see that they're part of a chain of events and they have really often minimal responsibility for what they've become, right, and what they've done. And the more we learn about the brain, the more reductive that is to a chain of causes, right? Mm -hmm. That's one view. Mm -hmm. Um, The other view, the other extreme view is, it doesn't really matter. I'm gonna channel um, a famous law professor here at Penn named Steve Morris, right? Steve says, look, We've been doing it this way for thousands of years. In As far as the law is concerned, if your mommy was really mean to you, if the kids picked on you, um, if you weren't as smart as your older sister, uh, if, if, if your daddy left the family, and you grew up and you became a criminal, well, you know, that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> that's really sad. But you have committed a crime, and you are responsible for committing a crime. Other people whose mommies were also mean to them didn't commit crimes. Mm -hmm. So as far as the law is concerned, uh, either, on this view, either you have committed a crime or you haven't. Now, we might make some concessions, right? Um, If somebody, for example, uh, if you really didn't have control over your actions, if somebody drugged you, threatened your family if you didn't kill somebody for mm-hmm. them you know okay well that's then you know maybe you don't have complete mens rea or the intention to do this mm-hmm. thing but um, for the most part you know the law is the law and you're responsible so that that's definitely true but uh, there are still cases where I think we take into account something so there's yes. the ability of people to plead insanity for instance and for a long time, that has been determined using psychology, like 
do respond to this questionnaire in a way that is consistent with insanity. Yeah. Whereas now we might be reaching the time and place where we can look at their brain and say, is there plausibility for insanity here? Is there amygdala, the, the center of emotion, is yeah. that impaired or, or damaged in any way? Or in another case, do they have brain damage? Like, um, for instance, football players, uh, they get these repeated concussions and right. it can lead to this disease called um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is right. basically their brain is damaged and it's after these repeated concussions it's basically deteriorating similar to alzheimer's and you can get dementia and, and other severe um socially problematic symptoms right and in some cases these people commit crimes or commit suicide and yeah. the question of culpability remains like are they responsible if their brain was damaged or the people who let their brain damage become responsible in some right. way and it, it's an important question I think for the future. Absolutely. Uh, the insanity defense <clears throat> itself classically almost never works. Um, so oh, that's yeah. a question of guilt or innocence. Yeah, it's, it's almost never works. That's a simply a question of guilt. Did you do it or didn't you? Did you pull the trigger or didn't you? So, so your, your, your observations really come in in, in the Anglo-American legal system in what's called the sentencing phase. Uh, so another colleague at Penn, Adrian Rain, has been involved in some very high-profile, awful cases where he has been, been able to persuade a jury and a judge that the perpetrator uh, not only has a social history of abuse, right, child abuse perhaps, but also uh, has some anomalous uh, uh, anatomy, mm -hmm. uh, which... Uh, helps to explain why on IQ tests he or she doesn't do well and uh, has problem controlling emotions and so forth. So in the sentencing phase, you might find somebody in a, in a place like California where there's still a, a capital punishment, you might find themselves getting a life sentence instead of being sent to the electric chair. Although in practice, in California, nobody goes to the electric chair. It takes too long. You die first mm -hmm. natural causes. But um, so that's where this kind of, of consideration could enter. Uh, if there's something we can see mm -hmm. um, that has, uh, that could persuade a jury that there really is a physical condition here that needs to be taken into account. But you don't see anybody who's hurt somebody else badly walking away in the legal system. It just doesn't happen. Uh, and I don't think this is gonna be completely my personal opinion here. I don't think that they should be walking away necessarily, but I don't think they should be put in a cell and locked up. So I think the goal of the law system should be not punishing someone, but protecting the rest of society. If the goal is to protect the rest of society, you want to implement a solution that is cost effective and that will make sure that that person who is not necessarily bad, uh, the goal is not to punish him, but it's to make sure that that person does not cause any more damage to the rest of society. And in that context, to me, it seems to make so much more sense to, to build institutions where we're actually helping those people get out of the situation. And to rehabilitate to the extent that they can. Exactly. And not to put um, them in a punitive environment. Exactly. Um, and I don't know, is there any movement towards that? Actually, we, I think in some ways we've moved away from it. Um, there were more institutions for what used to be called the criminally insane in this country than there are now. Uh, now, and I grew up in a town in which there was such a place in, in upstate New York. Um, even even that institution, though, was under the uh, the auspices of the prison system, not of a hospital system. Um, now, 
now the problem is that upwards of 20% of people who are in prison are actually mentally ill, having diagnosable mental illness in this country. Uh, and so although we like to say that we've deinstitutionalized de mental hospitals, the truth is they aren't institutions, they're just in prisons. And there is no rehabilitation, uh, virtually none, right? So uh, I, take, I take that point. Um, but this is a part of a bigger political problem. Those people have no power. Uh, their families have no power. You know, for the most part, they don't vote and they don't have much money. Um, so the reality is that because of sentencing laws, and actually we're just now in a process in Washington where there seems to be some movement in terms of sentencing laws uh, and, and, and reforming sentencing laws around uh, a drug, for example, you know, drug crimes in which nobody's been hurt, uh, but there's drug sales and so forth. Um, that those people should not be in, in agreed, those people should not be in prison. And then there are many other people, unfortunately, who are in prison who should be in a re more of a therapeutic environment. But do you think it would cause more money to actually treat these people and release them earlier rather than keeping them forever in cells? We, we have to, uh, so my colleague in this department, Dominic Sisti, has done great work on this, which he said, you know, in a way we need to bring back the asylum. That's a dirty word. The asylum used to be a clean word. Uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. Because now, according, because of other popular culture, including Cuckoo's Nest, we have very yeah. bad views of uh, asylums. That's true. But, uh, of course, you're right. That has to be bootstrapped. I mean, in other words, some there has to be a political movement to, to create for the seriously mentally ill, including people who've committed crimes who are diagnosably mentally ill, there has to be another system, another institutional system. And so that has to be that has to be bootstrapped, as I've said, that has to come from somewhere. And that's unfortunately because we have a state system, we have a federal system that's going to be state by state to a great extent. Given that most people who are listening to this are going to be graduate students um, and that we are in this academic environment, I wanted to know if you had any advice for either soon to become or current graduate students in their studies in general. You know, you're talking to somebody who just stumbled into things throughout his career. So be okay. open to new opportunities, uh, um, particularly in the sciences. There are there are opportunities in the policy world, and we've been talking a lot about policy in this hour, opportunities to participate in, in the policy world that people in the sciences often you know, don't think about. And depends, obviously, very much on who the boss of your lab is. But some PIs really like the idea of a grad student going over to a legislative office and, and, you know, and helping develop some piece of legislation or thinking about a policy in a think tank. or. Um, taking a, God forbid, a bioethics course as part of their graduate career. People oh, definitely. can do that. Yeah. We have a master's program in bioethics here at Penn, very well developed, lots of uh, dual degree students, and, and there are uh, a number of other places around the country that have opportunities like that. I, so if I, you know, I know I, I, almost every month, probably maybe sometimes more than once a month, a science, somebody in, who's in a PhD program in, in a science will write to me or call me and say, you know, I really not sure I want to spend the rest of my life in a lab. 
Uh, and there are opportunities for people who have the kind of skills you have that are rare and valuable and not in labs. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would say be, uh, be open to new opportunities and if you're lucky you'll have a PI or a director who will let you do that.